0: Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey salespeople, today it's my great pleasure to welcome Anthony Areno
1: to the show. Welcome, Anthony. You got my name right. How about that?
0: One of the reasons I'm so delighted to have Anthony on the show today is because I feel like I know him, even though we never really spoke before, because I read all three of his amazing books, uh, Eat Their Lunch, The Lost Art of Closing, and The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. And it's hard to have a favorite of these books, but my favorite of the three is definitely Eat Their Lunch, which is all about winning customers away from the competition. So that's what we're going to talk mainly about today. Anthony, I'm going to ask you the same question I ask all of our guests, which start with, what's your favorite sales book of all time and why?
1: I got turned on to Spin Selling by Neil Rackham, and I love that book. It taught me to always get a commitment for the next meeting while I was in a meeting. But he wrote another book uh, very close together with that book, and that book was called Major Account Sales Strategy. And of all the books that I read that was what I would call practical and tactical, something that you could immediately put to work, that book was that book. It was really about how do you go out and win major accounts. And as soon as I had finished reading that, I really set my sights on very, very large accounts. I mean, accounts that spent more in a year than what my company's total revenue was. That book was a blueprint for me in winning those, those accounts. So Neil Rackham's work has been very influential, and that has to be my favorite book.
0: I second the motion on Neil Rackham's books as well. And I really appreciate that what draws you to those books is that practical and tactical nature, not to blow too much smoke in your direction, but that's what I love about your books as well, As I feel like so many sales books, I find sometimes they're just too abstract and, and not actionable. And I think one of the hallmarks of people who do write practical and tactical books is that they really have walked the walk for a significant amount of time. I know from your background that you've been selling for a very, very long time. Do you you want to tell us just like a little bit about what your first sales job was or the first thing you remember selling?
1: Well, it's probably the second thing I remember selling. The first thing, I, I had a newspaper route at one time, but I don't remember having to work very hard to have people sign up. I think they were signed up and I was basically just dropping the papers off. I was 15 years old and I got a job working for the Muscular Dystrophy Association, calling people in community organizations to have them run a -a bike-a-thon where people would ride a bike and people would donate money based on the number of miles they rode. And I was 15 years old at that time and I was making cold calls. I didn't feel bad about making cold calls. I was just calling people, trying to have a conversation with them, sending them out the kit, trying to get them to to sponsor the bikeathon and then at some point I got a job at a roller skating rink where I was doing lip syncs of uh, the most popular music of the time which meant rock and roll and it was a great upgrade from cold calling to just being at a skating rink i was 15 years old and i got a call 2 weeks after i started at the skating rink saying we need you to come back you're the only person that's gotten anybody to do a bikeathon and you have two bikeathons going on next week I was flattered, and I said, no way, I'm not coming back. I'm, I have a much better job. But that's the first thing I remember selling that I really had to sell.
0: As fascinated as I am by the bike lip syncing at a skating rink. I don't recall that as being a thing. So, would you stand up on a platform and rock out with teased up hair and
1: Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I I was a wild kid, so I did uh, an Alice Cooper thing and we did a hanging at the end of it like Alice Cooper did. There was sort of no rules. They just wanted entertainment.
0: Let's transition over to competitive differentiation specifically and you have this four levels of value concept that you talked about in Eat Their Lunch that it was like the clearest presentation I had heard of it. And, and we obviously think a lot about our competition and everywhere I've ever worked, you always have some sort of at least one, if not many main competitors. So I think this is so relevant to audiences. Could you walk us through a little bit of what those four levels of
1: value are? I was trying to explain to people how you have to think about being strategic and what people are really trying to buy. In the first book I wrote, I quoted a Harvard professor named Theodore Levitt, who said, people don't buy drills, they buy holes. And if they could have the hole without buying the drill, they'd just take the hole. And that always stuck with me as a really, really interesting observation, is that they don't really want to buy a drill. And it doesn't matter if your drill's yellow, and it doesn't matter how many different bits come with the drill or anything like that. They want a hole. And why do they want the hole? because they're trying to decorate their house or something else. There's there's a strategic need that you're trying to help with. And it's a difficult concept to try to explain to somebody like the product doesn't matter. And like, yeah, but I have a really good product. Well, yeah, a lot of people have a really good product. And no matter what your product is, other people have products that are good too. Okay, so that can't be the primary differentiator. Apple has some good differentiation, but in an audience of 500 people, You know, a couple hundred of them are going to be carrying Samsung's because Samsung makes a good phone too. It just depends on what you believe that product does. So that's one. Two is the experience. So, are you easy to do business with? Do you have good service? Do you have good support? Is there something that you can add to level one that transcends it and includes it? So it's more than that, but it also makes one even better. We've been commoditized in my mind at level three for probably 30 years, which is, I need you to do this thing for me. I need you to get me this outcome. So I'll give you an example. Let's say somebody prints material and mails it. So the outcome is, is can you print this? Can you make it beautiful? Can you get it from point A to point B so that we can get it in the mailbox of our potential customers? Well, there's a lot of people that can do that. And there's some people that can say, well, I could do it cheaper or I could do it faster. But ultimately, those aren't huge differentiators, so they don't do too much to make somebody prefer you. So how do you get the preference? Because that's really what we're doing when we're selling is we're trying to create a preference to buy from us, to buy from our company, to let us be their partner. What I noticed is that there's this level four. So there's this other level where it's strategic, where you become sort of an integrated part of how they think of what they're doing, and you become a trusted advisor and truly consultative. So why does somebody want to send a piece of mail from point A to point B? Not because they like sending mail, but because they're trying to acquire a new customer. So when you talk about, okay, let's talk about customer acquisition strategies. How do we help you reduce the cost of acquiring a customer? Now you're talking to somebody in terms that when they hear this, they think, okay, this is a person who understands what I want. I'm not trying to mail things. I'm trying to get people to open the mail, go to the web, type in their information so I can send them a credit card. Or whatever the case may be. So it's the level four value that ends up being differentiating for most salespeople because most salespeople still sell at three at the best and one at the worst. I mean, there's still salespeople that come in and say, let me tell you about my company. Let me tell you how long we've been in business. Let me tell you who's on our board. Let me tell you who our investors are. And they do all this proof providing as if the proof is going to differentiate them, but it's not. It's the focus on the outcome and who can best describe the strategic need to do something different and cause someone to change that tends to be the winner in that contest.
0: There's still a lot of product feature and functionality
1: selling. Too many, too many people still doing that.
0: I have a theory as to why, which is a lot of products, particularly in the B2B space, have some degree of technical complexity to them and bells and whistles and so on. If you think about sales training and enablement, so much of that training and enablement time is spent on product features and functionality. Not just in onboarding, but also in the ongoing training, right? Every time the engineering team has a new release, that's where they focus. The sales enablement team may not even have adequate time or preparation, especially in the age of just-in-time or continuous release schedules to actually tie every one of those enhancements to ultimate
1: business value. I think there's another reason. When I come in and I say my company's been in business for 27 years, we do X amount of revenue. These are the logos that we've won. These are our great product sets. What I'm saying is that I'm not the value proposition. My company's the value proposition. My product's the value proposition. To accept that you have to be level four is to accept that you have to be the value proposition. And people say, well, I want to be consultative. Okay, what does that mean? They would say, I'm not high pressure. I don't do a hard sell and ask really good questions. Okay, fine. But that's not what consultative means. Consultative means You counsel people, you tell them what they need to do to get a better result. But if I don't know how to tell you, or I'm not confident about telling you that you need to do this to get a better result, then a lot of people move back down to level one to say, my company knows this. My company has these products. These great companies have bought from us. And they start to lean heavily on something that doesn't really create compelling differentiation.
0: I'm trying to think about different sellers in terms of their level of maturity, on one end of the spectrum, right, you've got the person who's been selling into the industry for a decade or more, Right, knows where the value lies with their product, and you contrast that with maybe somebody who's either new to a company or new to an industry, how can that new person become that level four trusted advisor or strategic partner?
1: It's not as hard as you think it might be. First of all, what I would tell you is that if that person's new in their company, Their information about what those strategic outcomes are and how you enable those, that exists inside the four walls of your company. But you just have to be aggressive about going and getting it and finding that person that's been there for 10 years and say, Let me watch you do your job, let me listen to you, and then go out and do some research so you know what are the trends that impact the client's business, what are the choices and decisions that they could make? Why is this decision better than that decision? And if you do the work and do some homework on this you can get really good really fast and you know you're now publicizing the level four on a podcast but most salespeople won't ever even know that there is a level four they've watched other people sell they've talked about product and talk about their company they've been handed a slide deck that the first eight slides are all about their company's great history and how great they are and they think that should be enough to win a deal but it's not enough to cause people to change And it isn't going to differentiate you in a meaningful way to talk about your company. So you have to have something more than that, but they can get it rather quickly if they work hard at it. On the
0: product and or company side, I love your perspective that it can be a lack of confidence of why they get stuck there. Your level two, which I interpreted as service, right, or experience, I hear sellers a lot of the time make this claim, right, that we have the best implementation or the best customer success. And I know that... I have no real way of vetting whether that claim is actually true or not, with the exception of perhaps going to something like G2 Crowd or talking to peers who are using those products.
1: And even then it doesn't mean you're gonna get that same experience.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Do you run into people who have in any way successfully positioned service as a differentiator?
1: Yeah, not only service, but experience even more generally. The one thing that I would tell you that can sometimes be confusing about the level four concept in general is we tend to think of all all of these like fours superior, so everything else is inferior. No, it's additive. So if you have a good product and it's a really good experience, your company's really, really easy to work with, and you eliminate a lot of the challenges, sometimes that's enough to win a deal when the rest of the market's behind you and they're just difficult to do business with. But yeah, there are some companies who are very, very good at the experience you're in the tech world. So in the tech world, there are some who you know are awful and they have great reputations that precede them that they're going to be difficult to work with and their implementation's not going to go the way that they hoped it would. But there are people who are buttoned up and who are good at it.
0: Your level three is business results.
1: Level three is important. There's no doubt about that. But the thing that that misses though is that why are we doing it? So in, in your world, in the, the SaaS world, let's just use CRM. Does it give me sales stages? Sure. Does it give me first name, last name, phone number? Sure. Can I integrate it with my mail program? Sure. Okay, so all all those things are nice, but that's not why you're buying it, right? You're buying it because will it help me accelerate sales? Will it give me a greater confidence in my forecasting? For some people, the answer would be yes. And for other people, the answer would be absolutely not. It's how willing are you to take the advice and do the things that we would recommend that would cause you to be able to get those strategic outcomes. And that's why the CRM doesn't really do anything. And the CRM is the same thing as saying, I'm going to give you a black leather phone book that you can write phone numbers and names in so that you always have the phone numbers with you. Is that going to give you better relationships? Not at all. Is it going to give you all of that information in one place? Yeah. And that's sort of the difference between three and four. What are you really selling? If you're selling an improvement to sales results, which is how CRM was positioned originally, like we can help you generate better sales results. Well, how? With an electronic Rolodex. I mean, essentially, that's what it was at the beginning. Now it's essentially ERP. But the difference is, what do you think you're doing? Are you providing software program for people to use to keep track of things? Or are you giving them some way that they can accelerate their sales? That's the difference. Like, What are you really selling?
0: So level four, again, is all about being a strategic partner, trusted advisor. What are some examples of where you've actually seen companies fulfill that at scale in their sales organizations?
1: There's dozens, but not always whole sales organizations. I mean, there tends to be some group of people in every sales organization who have figured out how to have this bigger conversation. And they end up being the salespeople who do the best and they're willing to have that conversation. But there's a couple of things that tend to be common when you see this. The first is the person has business acumen. So you started by saying somebody who's been in the same industry for 10 years or maybe in the same company. If you do something for 10 years, your business acumen and what I call situational knowledge, just your experience saying in this situation, this happens. And in this situation, this other thing happens. And I can tell you how to make a trade off and to get that better result. Those people tend to over index on results because they have that. And it's not that somebody without the 10 years can't do it, but you have to work really hard to pick up those talk tracks and the depth of understanding that says, why is this better than that? I mean, you can figure it out, but having somebody teach it to you makes it faster for you. The people that I know that do level four, and I didn't invent level four, I just observed it. I observed it in people who were willing to say, what are you really trying to do? Because it sounds like you're saying you want this thing. And so I came out of temporary staffing. In temporary staffing, people wanted people to show up for their job, but that's not what they really wanted. They wanted to lower the cost of acquiring new employees, and they wanted to reduce their turnover, and they wanted to increase their efficiencies, and they wanted flexibility to be able to scale up for big projects and scale back down months later. So they had more strategic outcomes. And what I learned was that the more I would talk about things other than myself or my company, the more people were interested in having a conversation. And I'll tell you um, two quick stories. One story, I had the best slide deck you've ever seen for a staffing company. It was beautiful. All the processes were drawn out by professional graphic artists. It told a great story. And after I delivered it, people bought from me, but no one ever asked me for a copy of the slide deck. Then I put together my own slide deck. It was all just data and it was big tables trends, all these things I would take out of newspapers. And I started giving it as an executive briefing and quarterly business reviews. And the very first time I used that slide deck, the client said, can I have that deck? And I said, sure. I said, what do you want to do with it? He said, I have to brief my boss later on. And uh, I'd like to have that deck to do that. And I went, wait a second. Okay, that's really interesting. The second person that asked me for the deck said, can I have that deck? I need to brief my executive leadership team. And I said, sure. And then he said, would you mind taking your logo off? (laughs) And then I thought, okay, this deck is really valuable to other people. And it didn't say anything about my company at all. All it said is, here's the world that you live in. Here's what we see going on. Here's some of the changes that you're going to need to start thinking about. Here's what we're doing to think about them. And people were fascinated with that. Then I started having executives show up at QBRs because they wanted to get a briefing on how to think about strategic decisions around human capital. That is the shift from three to four, you know, talking about how do I get you the tangible result to talking about how I get you the strategic result makes a difference. So the second story I'll tell you, I went on a sales call once, there were five people on the client side and five on mine. And I walked in and a guy named Tim said, um, Anthony, why don't you tell us about yourself and your company? And I said, Tim, that would probably be the least interesting conversation we could possibly have. And he said, no, no, no. I really want to hear about you and your company. And I said, well, the very best way for me to tell you about me and my company is to tell you the kind of things that we think about. And I went into the deck where I started talking about insights, sharing how to think about strategic decisions around staffing. About an hour and 15 minutes later, he excused himself from the room and the woman sitting across from me said, how did you do that? And I said, what did I do? And she said, Tim has never been in the room with a salesperson longer than seven minutes. You kept him here for an hour and 15 minutes. And I said, well, I think we were just having a really good conversation. But I knew that the reason that he stayed is because I didn't start at level one. I didn't have a conversation about, let me tell you about me. I think he would have said, yeah, you know what? I already have people that do what you do. Thanks for coming in. But instead, we had a conversation about what really matters. Level four is what really matters for most people.
0: I think so many salespeople have interpreted this advice to be a trusted advisor or strategic partner as just a clever ruse to simply position the value proposition of their product as an idea, right?
1: Well, it's something that I say all the time. Salespeople say things like, I want to be consultative, or I want to be a trusted advisor. And I continually tease sales audiences when I get to speak to them that you only need two things to be a trusted advisor, trust and advice. It's a very, very simple recipe. But if you don't have the advice part, so the advice part means this is the right thing to do to get the strategic outcome that you want right now, even if you don't buy it from me. Even if you don't buy it from me, this is the right answer for you. And when you're saying this is the right strategic advice for you, even if you don't buy from me, that's a pretty good test as to whether or not what you're doing is pitching your product or you're really pitching the conceptual idea about the change that you need the client to make in order to achieve that strategic outcome or goal. Now, sometimes we're teaching them that they should have a bigger strategic outcome or goal in mind. And other times we're helping them with something that they've already recognized that they want. Both of those things can be true. But the fact that you have the advice, the fact that you know something that you would recommend to them is what makes you a trusted advisor. The trust part needs to come with advice. And I think if the advice is, you should buy our product, it's really, really good, and uh, we'll be a really good partner. That is not the advice that says, this is why you should change, this is how you should change. These are the trade-offs that you should make, and this is where you're going to be on the other side of this process. That's a very different salesperson.
0: I love the way you phrase that, which is, right, this needs to be something that the person can and should do, even if they don't buy from you. To what extent does that advice need to be either immediately actionable or actionable with some degree of effort. Immediately actionable advice on CRM might be, right now, you should make sure that people are implementing a mutual plan with a customer. So it's sort of immediately actionable advice versus maybe there's a solution that allows you to actually implement the mutual plan in the platform. There's stuff that's immediately actionable and then there's stuff that is just...
1: is. It's longer term.
0: Yeah, in- longer term, expensive, what have you.
1: Well, it's expensive in a couple ways. It's expensive, maybe financially, but most of the time when we're trying to help somebody get a strategic outcome, we're asking them to make changes along with us. So you can say the CRM, so this is level three, the CRM actually allows you to track what the next commitment is. Okay, that's one thing. But the coaching that we're gonna give you around that is gonna allow you to have a better conversation to make sure that the next step is the right next step that the salesperson knows how to manage that process and that you actually have them show up and keep their commitment moving the deal forward faster they're trying to move a deal forward i don't need to know what the commitment was i actually need somebody to keep the commitment and move forward in the process with us That's how you sort of have to think about these things is you can split those apart. So how do you help me accelerate that? Or how do you help me make sure that the salesperson gets the coaching to be able to gain that commitment and move a deal forward? Those are just very, very different outcomes. So the CRM would enable that if you decided it would. And if you gave insight about how best to do that and how to get that strategic outcome, which is better deal flow or faster compressing the sales cycle, one of those things, you can do something more than level three.
0: Technical buyers, you don't have to go much past the level one product or level two experience. And then with the economic buyers, you need to go further right into the business results and the strategic partnership levels three and four. Do you think that's an applicable rule of thumb or do you think that's overly generalized?
1: I think all generalizations are lies. So, <laughs> you know, and in, in that was a generalization I just made that making that a lie too. <laughs> the thing about generalizing like that is it can be useful. So generally, when you go to an end user and say, can you tell me about your strategic plan for producing better results over the next 18 to 24 months? And they're like, not really. (laughs) It's not my job. I'm I'm not making strategy decisions. So you can go to level four with them, but they're not at level four and they don't care. But when you say something like, can you share with me how what we do could enable you to do your job better and faster? And can I share with you what has been helpful to some other people? level one's important. Let me just stop and say that level one is really important. And it's not like you get to four and you can get there without getting one, two, and three at the same time. Like we're really strategic, but everything else we do really sucks. Sorry about that. Product's not good. Service is terrible. doesn't really work very well. I need all these. The end user cares deeply about level one. It has to work. It has to be easy for me to use, which is level two. You have to give me some support. And you have to create level three. It has to actually do what you say it's going to do. So I need all of those things for the end user. But you are trying to match the value to the conversation. If you go to a CEO and say, I would love to give you a a demo of Sales Loft, and I want to walk you through every single screen and every single function, they go running, screaming for the door. Like, if I have to see this, if I have to know all these things that you want to show me, I can't buy it because I'm not going to do this. I have people that are going to do it you're trying to match the level of value to what people care most about.
0: The framework that you have for being a level four seller, and you mentioned it in passing, but I want to put an exclamation mark on it because it was something that I thought was extremely valuable, which is how do you tell that story about value? And that framework had three pieces. It's trends, implications, and advice. Can you give another example of that just to really underscore how people would actually build that story?
1: That's what I hoped I did with the book. On on the section, chapter two, Capturing Mindshare, I've got a framework in there for thinking about how do you go out and research what trends are going to impact your client? And it starts with why should they change? It's different than starting with why we're a really good company and you should trust us with your business. The difference is stark. So when you come in and you say, you know, in staffing, 11,000 Baby boomers retire every day in the United States, so that's 4.3 million people a year retiring. There's 200,000 people being hired each month, and that leaves a gap of 138,000 people missing each month, which is why right now there's 2 million more jobs open than the number of people on unemployment which means it's going to be more difficult to find the people. They're going to be younger. They're not going to have the experience. So the implications are you're going to have to work a lot harder to find a value prop that meets the millennials and Gen Z's demands for what a good workplace looks like. And you're probably going to have to have a training and development program to sort of get them up to speed because the 67-year-old guy that's been in this role for 35 years isn't going to be here to train them and teach them. And you're not going to be hiring people that know how to do this in the same way that the group of people that have been here before So there's a a reason to change. There's an implication for not doing something. And when you can stack five or six trends together to say, even if one of these isn't true for you, or even if two of them isn't true for you, generally, this is the direction that things are going. And this is why you should be changing and doing something different now, rather than waiting for something bad to happen. And again, you can't be a trusted advisor if you show up after people get hurt and say, you should have done something about that. Why'd you let yourself get hurt? If you're the trusted advisor, you have to go and have that conversation before that. So you're, you're looking at trends, you're looking at implications, and then you're looking at how do I get them to take action on this and to do something about it before something bad happens. I'll give you an example from staffing many years ago. I told a client for two years that their rate was falling behind the market. And I said, at some point, you're going to come to us and ask us for people and nobody's going to accept your job. And one year, we couldn't get them any more people their pay rate had fallen so far behind. They were so far behind the market, no one would take a job with them. I'd worked two years to try to get them positioned to do something about it, but they wouldn't do it. And some people actually have to have the heart attack before they decide to start eating vegetables and you know, getting a little exercise. The more you can stack these things up, the more compelling you can be.
0: Do you think that the trends that you present need to be non-obvious to the buyer?
1: I think that there has to be some novelty. And there's another piece of that that I, I have in the the framework in the book, which I call views and values. So some of them can be obvious for sure. There's some things that are worth talking about that are systemic. But I think that you should have a unique view of, of what it means and a unique view of what you should do about it and uh, a depth of understanding about how there's an interaction between them. I mean, if you walk into somebody and There's two outcomes here that I want to make sure that I'm clear about. So one of them would be the novelty to say, yeah, we hadn't seen that before, or we hadn't looked at it this way before, or I knew this, but I hadn't seen the data behind it before. But the other thing that you want them to know is that I know, I know these things. I'm the one that's doing the research. I'm the one that's doing the reading. I'm the one that's doing the synthesizing. I'm the one that's a subject matter expert. I'm the one that has the right to advise and offer counsel because You buy this one time every seven years and I sell it every day. So I've got 600 customers that buy from me and you do this for one person. So I have a better depth of understanding of the choices and how these things are impacting other people's business. So it's not just the trends by themselves. There's more to it. But part of it is, are you a peer? Do you know enough to sit across from me and tell me or teach me anything? And the trends help you do that. So you're looking for some novelty, but it doesn't have to be all novelty, The fact that you know some of the things that they know that are important to them means this person's paying attention. They understand our industry. They understand what's going on. And you're trying to make sure you have proof of that as well. What resources can an
0: earlier career sales professional or someone new to a company draw upon if they're not a peer, right? If you're selling to a chief information officer, right? And you're a 28 to 30 year old and you're selling to a 50 year old CXO. What can a person do in order to create that peer relationship?
1: There's a number of things. I will just tell you what I did when I was 25. At 25, I had a brain surgery. I came back to work in my family business, and I started calling on people who were really old. I went into these rooms with people who had decades more experience than I did, and I I had to be able to talk to them, and they had a different language. I wasn't really steeped in business outside of my own. And they had a different language and a vocabulary that I didn't have. And I started just making notes on things that people said and then asking questions about, when you say that, what does that mean? And what does that mean for your business? And I started asking people to tell me that. I realized there's a whole bunch of people here who are happy to talk to me and they're happy to teach me their business. And I need to just start asking them. So there was a a guy at Structure, which was a division of the limited at the time, limited brands. And uh, his name was Dallas Mulder. And I said, Dallas, uh, I need to understand how somebody in my role is supposed to be serving and taking care of your business. What is it that I need to do to help you that you would find the most valuable for me? And uh, we started having a conversation about throughput and about the investment that they make in human beings to do work and how much work gets done and how many packages get moved through and the metrics that they use for measuring that. And at some point he said, listen, why don't you sit in on a couple of our Friday meetings? And as we walk through all these numbers, it'll make more sense to you. So I sat in the room quietly while other people talked about the business, and uh, I started to learn how to talk about the business. After maybe four or five people started explaining to me how e-commerce companies at the time and distribution companies and retailers think about metrics, I started to be able to have a conversation about it. So the sixth client I walk into, I start saying, how are you measuring throughput and what are the factors that tend to dominate what your result is here? And immediately they're like, wait, this guy, he's talking about throughput. Like he's, he knows our words. He knows how we talk about it. And I was immediately differentiated, but I asked people to tell me how to think about their business or what are you thinking? So it's great to be an expert and do some research and it's great. I'll give you a couple other things to do. Find the smartest people in your business And listen to how they talk about these concepts so you can pick them up faster. Go on sales calls with people that have more experience so you can pick up the talk tracks. The best salespeople I know are mimics. They're mimicking someone else. But at the same time, ask your clients, what's the best way for me to serve someone like you? What do I need to know more of to be more valuable to you? And they're happy to tell you what the answer is to that. And if you're young, use that as an advantage, not a disadvantage. They'll teach you what you need to know if you let them.
0: I do really appreciate that question as well, which is, what do I need to do that you would find most valuable for me? So often salespeople feel like they need to rush out of the gate with value, and it's really easy to miss the mark. Well, I'm so thoroughly enjoying this. and We didn't even scratch the surface on some of your other work, but I'd love for people to find out a little bit more about you. So what's the best way to find your books and to connect with you and find out a little bit more?
1: TheSalesBlog.com. That's where I publish daily. You can connect with me on all the social sites from there. I like Twitter the best. I like LinkedIn as long as you don't pitch me straight out of the gate with a Calendly link at the bottom. That would be good. Or YouTube.com forward slash Awesome.
0: So again, that was Anthony Anarino. As I said at the beginning, I cannot more strongly recommend all three of his books, Eat Their Lunch, The Lost Art of Closing, and The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need couldn't tell you which order to read them in, but if you had to buy just one, I would definitely pick up Eat Their Lunch because it's so relevant to competitive positioning. Again, thanks so much, Anthony. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from Salesloft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices
1: from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.